Welcome to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organizations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. I'm Sean McLean, partner at Hydrogen Struggles and member of the Global Industrial Practice. Our leadership podcast provides timely and relevant leadership insights on what organizations and leaders should be thinking about to stay competitive, both in Canada and on the global stage. In today's podcast, I'm excited to be talking to Don Farrell. Don Farrell has over 35 years of experience in the electricity industry with roles at Transalta and BC Hydro. She was the president and CEO of Transalta Corporation up until her recent retirement this past spring. Dawn was instrumental in the development of Transalta's wind and renewables business through the acquisition of VisionQuest Wind Electric and subsequently Canadian Hydro Developers, Inc., which solidified Transalta as the leading independent renewables power company in Canada. Currently, Dawn sits on the board of directors of the Comoros Company, a New York Stock Exchange-listed chemical company, Canadian Natural Resources, an international oil and gas company listed on the TSX in New York Stock Exchange, and is a prior member of the Business Council of Alberta. Dawn, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, great to be here, uh, Sean, and thanks for the invitation. So, as I mentioned, you retired recently after a remarkable and transformational tenure as CEO of Transalta. After having a few months to reflect, what would you say are the leadership skills and experiences you found most essential as you navigated different roles in your career? Well, Sean, I think you started out by saying you've had a few months to reflect, and one thing I say to people is, ask me this question now, then ask me in two hours, and ask me two hours later, and you'll get a different answer because I, I find that as I reflect, I often change how I think about things. So it, it is an interesting period post coming out of working for 35 years. When I thought about this question, the skills I think that help leaders across every business or industry really are listening and managing your emotion. Those are the two primary ones. And, you know, as a young executive or a young manager, it takes a long time to learn how to listen carefully. As you know, listening just isn't listening to what words people say. It's reading the room. It's looking at people. It's trying to figure out what the undertones are. It's determining whether or not you've been successful in your communication. It's just so multidimensional. So it's a key characteristic. And when I say managing emotion, 90% of the time people think that means, you know, holding on to your emotion and being very calm. But to me, managing your emotion is both ways. It's knowing when to be extremely calm and it's knowing when to be very passionate and it's knowing when to be very firm and stern and sometimes knowing when to be angry because people are people and you're trying to move things along and you're trying to make things happen. So I think those are the two primary ones. But at the end of the day, I think leadership is often just about that perseverance and tenacity to stick in there. And often when I'm asked to talk about women in leadership and things like that, what I've reflected on is how many leaders cut out. They cut out for various reasons. They have all sorts of excuses, all sorts of, you know, I got to go spend more time with my family or walk my dog or do whatever it is they're going to do. But I think what differentiates true leaders from wannabe leaders is the stick to itness. I will never lay down in the ditch. I will wake up every day. And as someone said to me, put my big girl pants on and get back out there in the ring and fight the fight for another day. 
I guess my final thought was, and I think I got really good at this at the end, and it was being very quick to the draw, not waiting for all the information, not making sure that I was 100% right all the time, but actually being quick to the draw, getting ahead of the game, being proactive, and moving people before they wanted to be moved. And I think leaders today have to have those skills. Don, it's very interesting you say that. Listening, curiosity, resilience are three of the key attributes that we thoroughly assess in our board and CEO practice in particular. Thank you for that insight. Your experience is interesting in that in both your executive journey at TransAlta and your board service, you've had direct experience with domestic and international businesses at a variety of inflection points. Based on this background and experience, what are the most exciting growth opportunities you see both in Canada and globally? And what type of leaders do you think those will require? Well, you know, as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about how you change over the years. There was a long period of time in sort of the first 25 years of my career where the rhetoric was always find what you're good at, stick to your knitting, get focused, have four or five key industries. And when I finished my career, what I've seen is that kind of thinking is all central planning thinking. And that has been absolutely pounded and eradicated and really the kind of thinking that you have to have as you enter into the global stage is much more entrepreneurial and much more that there's lots of seeds that can be sown and there's lots of opportunities that can come from places like Canada that aren't necessarily things where you say, well, you have natural resources, you have natural energy, you have this and that. So therefore you should just focus there. I actually think what Canadians can do well, and I'm seeing lots of shoots of it, is start businesses and get them scaled and scale them internationally. So I think The game of scaling international global businesses is not exclusive to the United States or China. I think it can be played from any corner in the globe. And I think Canadians can play that extremely well. So I think the kinds of opportunities that are out there are endless, infinite, really. And I think the kinds of characteristics that you need to play in the global game, many Canadians have most of them. And I'm really excited to see a lot more of the kind of entrepreneurialism that I think, you know, we've been slow to grow, but it's coming. And I just think that's what's going to get us into the future. I'm excited to hear you say that, Don. I've noticed that Canadian leadership expertise, boardroom experience exports very well internationally. We play well internationally. There's something about being inherently Canadian in style that seems to work well on the international stage. And yet we haven't consistently succeeded to build companies at scale, international organizations. So it's exciting to hear Canadian executives and leaders see that potential. I think many of our listeners right now are thinking lots about technology transformation and, of course, change management broadly. You have significant experience driving technology transformations, most recently, of course, with Transalta's fleet and in its core systems and processes. What leadership strategies and skills have you discovered are imperative to success? And what are the derailers when you lead through these sorts of transformations? I think it's kind of along the same theme. And and Sean, I would say that we have put some really great companies on the global stage. And there's a lot of large companies in Canada that are playing a great game internationally and growing. And I just think there's going to be more in the future. There's not as many yet, but I think we will hit over the average as we go out over the next 10 years because of the kinds of education we have and the kind of people we have, the kind of values we have. But when I think about transformation, again, it kind of goes back to the same theme. What I learned was top-down The CEO is the God, the executive team knows it all, having a strong strategy, having a strong plan, allocating resources carefully, 
never, absolutely never, 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 never worked. It's not fast enough. People are not knowledgeable enough and it doesn't engage the people that actually need to make the change. So the number one learning for me was when we could figure out how to engage all 1,800 people that worked at TransAlta and when we could figure out how to engage our suppliers and our partners and when we could get everybody to lead, we called it lead from your corner, everybody leading from their corner. By giving people some safeguards, you know, kind of go in this direction. We're in electricity. We're not in something else. But when we could give everybody a way to participate in innovation and change and do it from their corner, we really accelerated the profitability and the transformation of the company. And that was the key. Now, remember, a lot of people wanted the other model that, you know, please be visionary and please tell us what to do and inspire us. And I'd be like, no, inspire yourself. What do you need to do from your corner? So I spent a lot of time as the CEO talking to the front lines. I wrote 50 blogs a year for nine and a half years, which I directed directly to the front lines so they'd know what was going on in the company, what I was thinking about and what I was seeing so that they would start to think about the same things. And I spent a lot of time calling the front lines we had an initiative where we had things happening all over the company. And every week I'd phone two or three groups to see how they got done, what they got done. So I had little pieces of paper, you know, with names on it and what the initiative was. And so I found these guys in the field and they were in the shop at the mine and they had got the opportunity to put a couple thousand dollars into changing their shop around. So it was more effective for what they were trying to do to work on the big trucks. And these guys are on the phone and they're like, Dawn, and then we did this and then we did that. And we had this, like they had like 5,000 bucks. And the way that they took care of that $5,000 and that shop and got it all ready for the trucks that they had to bring in, it was so inspirational. And we had that going on all through the company. So when you translate that back to Canadian businesses, I think Canadians really have this sense of fairness and egalitarianism and they really don't have this up and down. We have front lines and back lines. And I think if we can really embrace in the economy and in our companies, getting people all on the same page and then using their leadership skills and using what their knowledge is to make our companies better, we can really step ahead. Don, that's pretty remarkable to hear you say 50 blogs a year for nine years. And it was definitely a great example of the time and energy that I know you put into communication, transparency, culture. It's a great example for CEOs out there, what it takes to really align and inspire an organization and to get them to inspire themselves, as you said, leading from their own corner. That's some great insight. Thank you. Moving to ESG and perhaps the energy industry specifically, I think we'd agree the global energy industry is at a fascinating inflection point. In Canada, one of the results is that leading organizations are taking a more public stance on ESG matters. In your view, what must Canadian energy industry leaders do to win the hearts and minds of key stakeholders? Well, I think it's very complicated and I think it's a very difficult question because there's a lot of people that are just completely against energy and particularly fossil fuel energy, and you're never going to win their hearts or their minds. So I think the key question for these companies is, What are they going to do to be able to transform their businesses and continue to supply forms of different forms of energy to the world? Because as you know, we don't exist on this planet without energy to get around hot and cooling in our homes and cooking. We need energy. So I think part of what that whole ESG journey is, is first of all, it has to be 100% authentic. 
I've seen a lot of investors talk about ESG and it's pretty surfacey stuff. You know, it just kind of reminds me of, here's your report card over here, but it's not all that real because we don't really pay that much attention to it. And so I think investors have to be authentically looking for what the ESG outcomes are of the companies. And companies have to be really investing in their ESG outcomes. And I have to say, I'm incredibly impressed. I just joined the board of CNRL, but I also, I'm a Calgarian, so I know the Suncor people, I know the Synovus people, I know that industry inside out. These people are working authentically on many, many strategies to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, to invest in new technologies, to reduce their footprint in a number of ways on their ESG framework. They are thinking seriously about how they do diversity and inclusion. And frankly, I think they need to be given a little bit more benefit of the doubt than all the cynicism that goes along because they are big companies with big money. They're spending big money. And really those cash flows being reinvested are what will take us to a different future where, because what I think what they all know is that energy cannot be high cost. It cannot be. It has to be low cost. You cannot ask the average household not to send their kids to hockey because they have to pay their electricity bill. You cannot ask them to pay twice as much for a car. You cannot ask them to pay twice as much to fill their tank of gas. So they know it has to be low cost and they know it has to have a lower environmental footprint. And they know that it has to be made ethically and that we have to stand for certain values. And I see a lot of effort going in that direction. And I see a lot of authentic effort, but it will take time. It's definitely not going to happen overnight. And I think giving a bit of benefit of the doubt is helpful overall. Some great points there, Don. And in your answer, you mentioned specifically diversity, equity, and inclusion. We, of course, know that organizations with more diverse and inclusive teams and cultures tend to make better decisions and they perform better. We also know that the Canadian industrial sector has much room for improvement on DEI. In your opinion, what are leaders doing well right now to accelerate the efforts of DEI in their organizations and what more must be done? I can only talk about what I did and I did as much as I could, but in reflecting back on it, I don't think I did nearly enough. So I'll talk about some of the things I did. Some of the things are really, really simple. So one of the things I did early on is I sat down with HR and I looked at all of our employees and I looked at every single woman in the organization and whether or not they were being paid the same amount as their male counterparts. And then I fixed that four times. So four times in nine years, I had to redo that calibration and four times in nine years, I had to fix that. So after I fixed it the fourth time, I actually said to the women, okay, ladies, it's time for you to start fighting for yourself. When you go into organizations, you need to negotiate tougher and you need to be tougher about your wages. But at the same time, I've, you know, I watch young women today and they just seem to always get left behind. So that's number one. Make sure everybody's getting paid for equal work out of the gate and you as the CEO can do that. The second thing I was quite disappointed in was the way that women were being treated when they came back from maternity. So we're talking about diversity and inclusion like it's some big fancy schmancy thing. And the reality is when a woman goes and has a baby, and by the way, it turns out only the women can have the children. That turns out to be a true story. It is an indisputable fact. So the women go away and they have the babies. And I always subscribe to the women taking the time with their babies because if they didn't, they dropped out. And there's a reason they dropped out because they had to protect their children. So they need that year to get organized, to get the baby organized, to do all the stuff that moms need to do. And they come back and they're completely behind. They get behind on wages, they get behind on promotions. And it's as if a year whole 
with a baby. Now, anybody who has children knows that a year home with a baby is far more stressful and it's greater work and lots more organization than anything you'd ever do in the office, ever. So women become very tough because they face those babies. And yet they come back to the office and they're completely discriminated against and they fall behind. So we change that. And then I think the third thing that somebody told me once that it takes one person in a room to change the behavior of an entire group. So one adult behaving properly will change the behavior. And of course, the alpha males and the alpha females dominate everything. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're in sports. It doesn't matter if you're in Transalta. They dominate everything. And we also know that often mistakes are made when the most aggressive alpha humans get their way. And diversity and inclusion is about toning that down and getting all the voices in the ring heard. So I think the third key thing you got to really do if you want to promote diversity and inclusion is start with the males. There's a whole bunch of males that are not heard in organizations because they're completely walked over. Then make sure that all the females are being heard in the room and do it deliberately. And then make sure all the minorities are being heard in the room because for some reason, our brains seem to think that if somebody's different, they're over there. So there's a lot of work that has to be done on the communication. The reason cultures with diversity and inclusion work is they work only if the people inside the organization can put their elbows up with each other, fight with one another, work with one another despite who they are, but all the voices have to be in there. And I think that's one of the key things that I learned. So many great lessons in there, Don, particularly on pay equity. Such a powerful pillar within DEI, where you can really put your money where your mouth is. Also, though, very interested to hear that as a female CEO, that you had to fix it several times. And in doing so, had to coach your female leaders to self-advocate to disrupt that cycle, which is probably a piece that sometimes gets missed. I also loved your comments around kind of toning down the alphas and going right back to the beginning of the conversation around listening, really dialing up the listening and teaching your alphas to be more curious and listen, which by its very nature creates a more inclusive culture. Thank you. Just some great thoughts in there. I just want to say, I have never heard anybody in a diversity and inclusion discussion talk about equalizing pay ever. So start talking about that. Make sure everybody's talking about that because that is where it starts right there. Interestingly, the CEO of one of our clients identified the same problem and wanted to fix it, called the CHRO in and said, if we have this problem, just fix it. I mean, we have the data. We're a software company. Yeah. It was, I think it was about a $10 million problem, which was a little more than he anticipated. And so he went then underneath that. What's causing that? He then went further to say, we're not having meetings unless there's a diverse group in the room. So yeah, something he thought could be fixed at the push of a button turned out to be far more complex than he realized. He was so proud of this inclusive and equal culture and found out it was actually a $10 million problem. Unless you show up here with some qualified women and don't tell me that there are no qualified women. So here's the usual slate of guys. You're just being lazy. And as a result of that, I got a lot of great women into Transalta, both on our board and our management team. So I think the bias is just everywhere. And it will take its time, but it takes a stick to itness on it. Absolutely. Don, you are CEO and are a current director of global organizations. So you've experienced varied business practices and cultures. What aspects of Canadian business culture do you think are most distinctive that more companies would benefit from adopting? And what do you think we could learn from other regions? So I don't think there's really anything all that unique about Canadian culture. What I say to people is, look, 
Utility companies globally are exactly the same. It doesn't matter if you're a Canadian utility company, an American utility company, Brazilian, Australian, European, all the pressures are the same. And you'll find the executives look the same, talk the same, have the same issues, have the same cultural issues. Same with oil and gas, same with parts companies, car companies. And I think the same thing about people. Doctors and their families are the same in Canada as they are in the U.S. as they are in Europe. Tradespeople are the same. We place way too much emphasis on this idea of national identity. The identities are in the groups that are inside the companies. So I think where the learning is often, where the learning was for me, because remember, I was transforming a utility to an independent power company that was completely on its own competitively. There's no rate base. There's no cost of service. Every piece of business we won, we had to, we kind of had to eat what we killed sort of thing. So going on the board of Comores was fantastic because that's the kind of company they were. So learning what the chemical culture had to do to survive globally helped me very quickly understand what I had to do with our cultural transformation. So that was a really, really big deal for me to have that board. What I learned there is when CEOs say, oh, my executives can't be on a board, they're crazy. Their executives all should have a board because you learn a lot by being part of another company. But I'm not sure that I've learned much being part of another culture. Despite what Canadians think about Americans, Americans are amazing people. They're a lot like us. They have values. They want to win just like we do. Canadians say they don't want to win. They're mostly passive aggressive. They absolutely do want to win. So they just quietly want to win. Maybe Americans are a little bit more out there about how they want to win. But they have the same values in their boardrooms. They have the same pressures. They're fantastic people. They are really working hard to make the world a better place. So I haven't learned much that way, but I've certainly learned that between industries, there's a lot to learn. Very interesting. Hopefully even more inspirational to those Canadian companies that are considering being international. We absolutely have the tools and the values and the capabilities to compete on a global scale. So let's wrap up on this as we bring this conversation to a close. Let's just touch on the past year and a half. We've had a global pandemic, social justice movements, shifting work environments, and many other massive changes. What are the lessons we must not forget? What are the challenges and opportunities this young decade has already presented? (laughs) Well, I'm sitting here today in West Vancouver. We can't get out of West Vancouver because of the fires on the highway. So the fires have closed the highway to merit. We were on a call this morning with a bunch of people that are quickly trying to raise money to help people get out of Afghanistan that supported Canadians, just military people that are just trying to do a really great job of seeing if they could help in that situation. And we're in a pandemic where every day I wake up and go, so I guess we're going to change again, right? We thought we had it, but here we go again. We have to no longer have our board meeting in October. We have to have another video conference. What I've learned over and over and over again is that Information is extremely powerful and that the masses can be absolutely manipulated with fear and information. And what I keep trying to train all of my family about is sort of this confirmatory bias that these machines are delivering, these algorithms. That is my number one concern is I have seen people are so anxious. I can tell when people have been on the internet feeding their confirmatory bias because there is a a certain tension and stress that emerges. And I just think leaders have to know exactly how communication is working these days. And they have to fight every single day to help people see what's real and what's not real, what we can do and what we can't do. I think the second thing, though, is what I'm really astonished by is 
the kind of innovation. So again, when I think about this morning, a group of military people in Canada here are probably going to get 800 Afghani families that were helping the military out within the next two or three weeks. And that wouldn't have happened had it not been for the ingenuity of the internet, of the technology, of the ability to raise money, all that kind of stuff. The Canadian government will probably get us some sort of COVID passport within two months. We'll find better ways to get those fires out. So the responsiveness now of humans to solve big problems is amazing. It is so much better than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. We have bigger problems to solve today. We have lots of issues with communication and propaganda. Propaganda, as you know, it's been around since the 1700s. As soon as you made the printing press, you created the opportunity to do propaganda. Well, now you've got it exploding because of the ability to get information around in ways that make people. So I think the challenges are big, but we are doing some amazing things and we have to just keep every day waking up and saying, yes, but we can solve that. Yes, but we can solve that. And leaders can't get cynical. They can't get down. They can't lay in the ditch. They can't admire the problems. They have to embrace what they can do to move things ahead. So I often say, I wish I'm starting out my career now. Like what a great opportunity ahead for leaders that are coming into executive functions or on boards of directors. The next 20 years are going to be super interesting, super exciting. And I think we've got better skills as leaders than we had 20 years ago. Don, I can't imagine a better way to wrap up the conversation with a message of hope, of optimism, of highlighting some of the incredible challenges that we've overcome through leadership and innovation. It's just a great way to end. I would highlight that we are having an election in Canada. Hearing you say those things, perhaps you have another career if you're, uh, if you're so interested. Oh, yeah, right. No. <laughs> <laughs> Don, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us today. And thank you to our audience for listening to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.